I'm David Moscrop. Welcome to Open to Debate, brought to you by Interact. Humankind is facing an extraordinary threat. No, not that threat, the other one, climate change. And we're running out of time to develop and implement solutions to meet the challenge, or at least to mitigate the worst of what's coming. Tackling the climate crisis requires radical change, including adaptations to, or perhaps even upheavals of, the social, political, and economic systems that have delivered us into this mess. Some, however, argue that we should keep some of the old ways, including, perhaps, the market economy. That leaves us to ask, can capitalism solve climate change? My guest on this episode of Open to Debate is Tom Rand, venture capitalist and author of The Case for Climate Capitalism, Economic Solutions for a Planet in Crisis. Let's start by way of the other crisis, the pandemic, and do a quick check-in. How are you managing these days? <laughs> well, as well as can be. I'm actually, I'm, I'm pretty lucky. I'm out in the country with my two-and-a-half-year-old boy and spending a lot of time with him. So that's fantastic. I'm beginning to miss my other people. I'm beginning to miss my favorite restaurant on College Street in Toronto in particular. So I'm fine, relatively speaking. Well, I was going to say I miss patios, but I lived in Vancouver for so long that you get to learn to live without patios <laughs> because they don't really have them or they're, or they're open for you know six weeks out of the year. <laughs> but I don't mind if it's a patio as long as I can just watch the world go by while eating some great Italian food. It can be through a window. I'm fine with that. But people, street life, action. I miss that as we all do. We might get some of that here today in the recording, given that I'm recording from home and looking out onto a fairly busy Ottawa street. So <laughs> let's otherwise launch right into it, going toggling back to a different crisis, to the climate crisis. In your book, you talk about anti-market critics, but also sort of free marketeers who believe that we can continue more or less as usual. And I find you've situated yourself sort of between them, almost as if there's a third way, which is maybe a dangerous <laughs> word to use. Yes, I was living in England during Tony Blair's reign. Who knew I would find myself a centrist in this debate? I never thought of myself as a centrist. But I think that's where all the real work is. And I think both extremes on this issue, those who somehow feel like we can nibble around the edges and the market will be fine, that doesn't work. It's not going to be fine. And for those who sort of have the moral purity of saying, you know, it's the economic system itself, let's throw it all out and start again, I would say, be very careful what you ask for. Institutions are not rebuilt from scratch the way you think they might. And I don't really know what it means to throw out capitalism, to be honest. The neocon libertarian view, sure, that's a gimme. Let's throw that out. <laughs> but beyond that, I think there's a lot of nuance that gets missed. And it's just unhelpful in trying to build a big political tent, which is really what we need to get action on this kind of a problem. I'm torn on this because from the institutional perspective, I agree and I'm with you. I am an old Tory when it comes to institutions, you know, that old idea that you don't tear down a fence before you know it was right. built. And I share the sort of skepticism that Edmund Burke had about our capacity to rebuild institutions. And I think every time you look at a great tearing down, you see a lot of strife and a lot of suffering, a lot of death. Looking back through revolutionary history, we can have a debate whether or not that was a more effective approach or not. In a lot of cases, it plainly wasn't. But I wonder when we look at capitalism and climate, we see the tension and we see the contradiction that it is the market that is driving 
a lot of these problems in the first place. And so the question arises, can we actually operate within that framework to solve the problems of the market? Or is it going to continue to produce the same logic that has got us into this mess in the first place? That's the fundamental question. It's interesting you frame it like that. The notion that the public sector and citizens' abilities to define the rules by which market actors play shouldn't be underestimated. You know, uh, Sweden, on my view, is a capitalist country. They have very discrete views about public education and all kinds of interesting stuff, but that doesn't make them a non-capitalist country. And so I'm sort of saying, look, there's an open-ended role really for the public sector, long before you get into La Revolution and you're a Marxist economy or something, long before you get there, there's room to breathe for an active public sector. Even the neocons, the, the real ones, the ones who are legitimately, you know, Milton Friedman, for example, I don't agree with much about what he says, to be honest, but even Milton Friedman acknowledged that there are certain things the market doesn't do. And that's what the public sector is there for, pricing externalities and all that kind of stuff. So I guess I'm just really emphasizing that, you know, we don't have to throw the baby out with the bathwater. But at the same time, you talked about, you know, the violence of history and whether institutions can stay stable and what role they play. Going forward, if we are heading where I think we're heading and where a lot of people think we're heading, the stability that we're currently relying on isn't going to be there anymore. And the notion that a populist, angry mob where bread 10 bucks a loaf really tears stuff down. I think that's the warning to the business community that I have. You can't be conservative on this issue. Being conservative on this issue is inviting essentially deep political instability going forward. French Revolution, the elites back then didn't see it coming. <laughs> you know, and I, I think there's a target on capitalism's back right now. I think business leaders need to step up and own the urgency of the situation and be a part of allowing the public sector and citizens to define the rules by which the market can operate and can solve this problem. So that's where I think all the nuance is anyway. Yeah, I think that's true. I mean, the great irony is that we have a critical juncture where we can get something done. And we'll talk about that vis-a-vis -vis COVID in a little bit. But the irony is that it's also extraordinarily dangerous. I mean, in a sense, we've gotten what we needed to get, which is a critical juncture. And yet it is probably the worst time to tear everything down because if we lack the capacity to respond, then we're probably worse off. But before I, I get into that, I want to get in a little sense of what it is you mean when you're talking about involving the public sector in either as a complementary role or a primary role in tackling the climate crisis and the market. If you're imagining a world in which we're taking climate change seriously, what's the public sector doing? What's the private sector doing? That's a very good question. So I've got a long and complicated answer to that, which is a set of, of actual suggestions in terms of policy suggestions, like a new green bank and energy efficiency standards and all kinds of stuff. So there's lots of regulatory options that we sort of know about, and maybe we can get into some of those details later. But at its bottom, like at the philosophical level, the public sector is the group that defines the rules by which the market operates. And by that, I mean, look, it's not all one or the other. I mean, you can't sell you know, white powder to kids because it's against the law. So there's never been a free, 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 free market. That doesn't exist. There's capital controls on banks. There's laws about, you know, what you're allowed to sell and not sell. That's why there's black markets. So there's always been constraints and rules put forward by the public sector in terms of how the market behaves. And there's bookends, right? There's a fairly free, loosey-goosey American-style capitalism, and there's a Swedish-style capitalism and everything in between. So Capitalism, to me, it's not one thing. It's not monolithic. 
it's not de novo evil, nor is it good. It is simply a set of forces that we use and harness in some way to guide our economic behavior. And we harness those forces under the guise of laws that come from the public sector. So it's always been a partnership, the public and private sector, in any sort of wealth creation or any stable operating economy. It's just a matter of saying, well, what are the tools that are particularly useful when it comes to the climate crisis in particular? And that's really all I'm asking and saying, we've got all these regulatory and policy tools. We know that the public sector has a role to play. It always has had a role to play. What's the best role for it to play going forward? And that's where I have you know, particular policy suggestions. But I'm really trying to stop the debate between the right and the left about whether or not the market's free or whether or not the public sector should be involved. Of course, the public sector should be involved. It sets the ground rules by which we operate. It's the director of the show and the private sector are really kind of actors. You know, we're seeing that in COVID. Only the public sector can coordinate that kind of behavior and provide a foundation upon which an economy can recover. But only the private sector can really provide you know, the creative juice that sort of allows that economy to get going as well. So it's always been a partnership and climate is no different. I see in terms of our response or lack thereof response to the, the climate crisis, I mean, there's been a market failure, obviously, insofar as the market has externalized an extraordinary amount of risk and damage that hasn't been properly compensated. Yeah. And on the public side, there's been a lack of political will. In fact, more than a lack of political will, the public side has often been complicit in those externalities or incompetent. Or, or some probably some mix thereof, and as as always is the case. I mean, I genuinely assume that it's usually about you know sixty forty one way or the other. But that to me is the system itself. And trying to tackle something like climate means changing that inherent relationship. And so, for instance, I go from where we both start, and then I end up at market socialism. That's been my banner. You still have market mechanisms, but capital and risk are both socialized. And I wonder what the big difference would be between, say, a market socialist response in which there's heavier public ownership, there's co-ops and extraordinary regulation, and a sort of restrained market that is still capitalist. Basically, the market socialist or one market socialist approach to this, because as you know, with socialism, there are varieties on the varieties. They would say, okay, when we look at large businesses who either fail or who aren't compliant with what we are going to do, we're going to socialize them. We're going to say, you have yeah. lost your public license and we're bringing you in to public ownership or to cooperative ownership. Right. Or to say that, in fact, this industry just isn't happening and we're just going to do it ourselves rather than, say, provide tax incentives or so on. Some might call that a mixed economy. There's a lot of debate over what counts as a mixed economy, what counts as market socialist. But the argument is yeah. being that you take a huge section of that market back because it has just failed the people. I mean, at what point do we say the market just can't do this? It's a really good question. I actually don't think there's much difference between your position and what I'm calling climate capitalism. If we need to renationalize the oil sector because they refuse to put themselves on a glide path to low carbon, then we have to do that. So I'm not really putting a limit. But what I am doing, though, is I'm separating climate out from a whole bunch of other kinds of problems that we're trying to solve, like social equity and you know basic housing and all kinds of stuff. So what I've seen the left tempted to do, this was in the Leap Manifesto in Canada and so on, and the Green New Deal, is in order to sort of maximize the excitement coming from the left, they bundle together a whole lot of different problems, whether it's you know social justice, gender equity, 
social housing, and so on. And they're all presented as manifestations of the same evil system, which is capitalism. So until you throw capitalism out, you can't solve any of these problems. So climate is lumped in with every other problem that we've got, and you can't separate it out as a discrete problem, which it is a discrete problem. It's called emissions. We need to put a cork on those emissions. And while I appreciate that there's great interconnectedness in our world, you know, from a pragmatic perspective, we do separate out particular problems we're trying to solve. That's just a practical thing. And then from a political perspective, look, the left has been anxious and eager to act on climate for a very, very long time. Bundling in more issues that the left cares about doesn't change the dynamic that we need to change, which is there are a bunch of people who may not care about those issues who we need to get to act on climate. And so when you bundle climate in with all the other ills and say, look, only getting rid of the market economy can solve all these things because the market economy is inherently corrupt and evil, we have to get rid of the system. La revolution is the only way to solve these problems and we solve them all together. We've all been in our lives sort of attracted to the notion of, you know, there's a secret code to the universe, right? There's an ideology that explains it all. And, you know, you can be right about all these things. And I think the world's too complicated for that, frankly. And from a practical perspective, we live in a democracy. You know, you need to build a big tent to get radical action on climate. And you're not going to make that tent bigger by dragging in all the other ills that you want to blame the market economy for. So that's why I'm pulling out climate part of it and saying we can do an awful lot of work there and perhaps get agreement from the right and the left and the business community to act on this problem rather than bundling it all together, which I think is a mistake. Is that different from saying that there is value, however, in taking a gendered lens or a racialized lens or, what, or whatever it may be, to looking at the problems? Look, all lenses are interesting. The world is a complicated place. There's no question that we live in a modern world. There are many views to take and to interpret that world. But at the end of the day, climate is a pretty practical problem. We have emissions coming out of smokestacks, and we need to stop those emissions. In that sense, it's almost a technical problem. But, you know, engineers don't run the world. If they did, we could solve this problem tomorrow. It's run by bankers and politicians and interest groups and all kinds of things. And all the hard, messy work is in getting those people to agree with you. So I don't want to discount the validity of different views and different lenses to view the world. But I do want to extract the practical problem and immediate problem of using the most powerful forces we have at hand to solve the most pressing problem that we have at hand, which is climate. Does the pandemic change that? And I don't mean in the sense of emissions are down because we're doing less X, Y, or Z. I think that's a canard. That's a blip. We'll, we'll go back to normal. I mean, I think the joke now is nature is healing, right? It's become a meme. <laughs> Something silly happens. It's like a, a raccoon is eating garbage in a park and it's nature is healing. But, but I mean, from the sense that we've reached a critical juncture now, we didn't ask for this pandemic. We don't want it. We would prefer not to have it. And yet, now things are on the agenda that weren't before and they're on the agenda in ways they were not there before. I wonder whether or not the pandemic has created a situation in which we have an opportunity to act in a way that we didn't before, structurally, I mean. In some ways, it's hampered action. In other ways, it's opened it up. So it's hampered action in the sense that public coffers are empty. The amount of money we need to spend just to keep this thing ticking over is going to wipe out any ability of governments to write checks for many, many, many years to come, which is a shame. But on the other hand, I mean, culturally, I think people have become implicitly and explicitly aware of systemic risk, right? Things can change overnight. And when you're fearful, 
And you know, who is it that's there to help you when you're most fearful? It's the public sector. That's the insurer of last resort. It's the food of last resort. It's the organizer of complex behavior of last resort. And ultimately, these risks are those that are you know, defined by experts. They warn of these systemic risks and then they hit. And suddenly our reliance on the public sector is profound. So that's one thing I think in people's minds, maybe we're more open to the idea that we're in this together. We need to act together on these scary risks and that is a cohesive collective action problem. But I also think practically speaking, look, we ran to the rescue of the financial community back in 2008 and didn't really ask for anything in return. Mm -hmm. And we're running, and when I say we, I mean we the people are running to the rescue of the economy as a whole right now. And I think we have every right to ask something in return. And that could well be the private sector being a real partner on aggressive climate action. So I think there's all kinds of ways in which psychology's loosened up. We're listening to experts. The public sector is respected and needed. And the private sector is reliant and playing second fiddle. That all comes together, perhaps, in an opportunity for citizens to say, okay, enough. We dealt with that risk. We will now deal with this other risk. And you will be a good partner with us, private sector, as we use the public sector to address that risk. I think that's a real opportunity. That's going to take an awful lot of political will, which we are going to keep coming back to, I think, because yeah. I agree about 2008. And this is another example of governments socializing a lot of risk and yet privatizing a lot of profit. And even with the pandemic, we've seen the, the sort of limitations and the strings put on money given out is really quite limited. Even looking at the debate over whether or not companies that use offshore tax havens and so on and so forth ought to be eligible. I mean, we've seen jurisdictions globally <laughs> say no. Too bad. In Canada, we sort of jumped around a little bit and then took a few different positions and ran away. But I wonder, do we look at a political situation like that and say, there's a government or a series of governments who are really rare and to say, we'll give you this money, but boy, you'd better do something socially useful with it vis-a-vis -vis climate. <laughs> I think if you're going to backstop the private sector, you should ask for something in return. I mean, the challenge is only those companies that are taking that help would be in a position to be asked to do something. So I think it's limited in our scope. You know, for example, when we bailed out the auto industry back in 2008, the Canadian and US governments were pretty firm, right? They wiped out equity in those companies, they bondholders took a haircut, and the public sector sat in governance in those car companies until the loans were repaid. So they really sunk their teeth in. And I think there an opportunity might be in our oil patch. If our oil patch really wants a bailout. I mean, I think COVID is a precursor. It's showing what's going to happen, you know, as we reduce demand for oil in years to come. I think clean tech is going to kick the crap out of oil and it's already happening. And Alberta's first in line because of the most expensive producers. So I think the writing's on the wall. Mm -hmm. I think COVID in Canada is kicking that conversation in a pretty high gear. And frankly, if an industry wants a bailout, like the auto industry wanted a bailout those years ago, those bailouts come with teeth. They're not free. They're not automatic. I think you protect workers automatically. That's what taxpayer money is for. But I think in terms of building out an industry, the investors and shareholders and participants in that industry, you get shaken up when you get a bailout. They're not free. It wasn't free for the auto sector and it shouldn't be free for our oil sector. But again, that's only those who are asking for the help. I think structurally finding the political will for people to step up and actually put a strong comprehensive and aggressive climate strategy in place, I think appeals to some of those softer things I talked about earlier. People were scared. And, you know, I think you need to address those fears head on and say, you know, we, the public sector, can resolve these risks if we act together. Kind of build on the momentum that I think 
citizens may be feeling in response to COVID, right? I do think that in the back of our minds, the general public are kind of like, oh, yes, scary things happen. Do we want to address these scary things? Yes, we do. And climate's one of those things. You earlier mentioned the French Revolution and elites not seeing it coming. And one of the jokes I make when I'm doing public talks is often, this is basically 1785 in France and people are knocking on the doors saying, we would like to come in and give you some feedback. Yeah. And I conclude with saying it's a lot easier to do it now the, the hard way than later the harder way, because the harder way is it's much more destructive. But I also want to pick up on a point you made. You mentioned clean tech. And in your work, you argue that most of the necessary technology we need to tackle the climate crisis already exists. It's not really yeah. about new technology or innovation. But why aren't we using it if it's out there? I mean, is it really a problem yeah. of technology or is it a problem of organization, especially relations between workers and owners in a market system that sort of begs us to consume? I want to separate out consumption from solving the climate problem, partly because politically, I just don't think an austerity agenda where everyone's got to take a huge pay cut, it really builds you the political agenda that you need. I think you have to have a forward-looking pro-growth view or you lose half the public and you'll never build that big tent that I keep talking about. But in terms of why this stuff isn't getting deployed, I mean, for one thing, just plain momentum, physical momentum, financial momentum. As Vaclav Schmil points out, quite correctly, even if you have an energy system or source of energy that's better, faster, cheaper than the old energy system, you know, going from you know, coal to natural gas or something like that, it takes 50 years to turn that energy infrastructure over. It's just a giant, physically heavy piece of machinery with a whole lot of vested interest. So you don't turn those things around quickly. And in Vaclav's view that he sort of thinks we're historically determined to fail on climate simply because every other energy revolution has taken 50 years and we don't have 50 years. I don't think we need to go so quietly into that dark night <laughs> because if you change the context under which this particular energy revolution occurs, then you're not historically determined to repeat yourself. So in that sense, that's what I'm talking about when I talk about an activist public sector, to accelerate the transition that is gonna occur anyway. You know, in Canada, we spend an awful lot of time talking about pipelines that carry very expensive, very heavy oil to be refined into gasoline. And that takes up most of our political discussion in this country, it seems. <laughs> and yet, if you look at clean tech, I mean, solar energy, wind, EVs, I mean, technology price curves do one thing. They go down. And technology performance curves do one thing. They go up. And there's nothing any politician, any oil executive, can do to stop those kinds of technological waves once they start. You couldn't stop the mechanization of agriculture if you wanted to. You couldn't stop the digitization of communications if you wanted to. And you can't stop what is essentially gonna be a solid state distributed energy system from taking over from the incumbents, which is coal, oil, natural gas, and so on. It will take 40, 30, 40 years to do that if you leave it to the market alone, but it will happen. That's what I mean about the writing's already on the wall for Alberta. This is not a 50-year play. I mean, 10, right. 15 years may be left on that resource. But you can accelerate it. So if the market would do it in 30 or 40 years and we need it done in 10 or 15, that's what the public sector is there for. It is there to find the bottlenecks, you know, break up the momentum that stops it from happening, to accelerate a transition that would take place anyway. That's why it's so futile to argue over pipelines and heavy oil. They're done over the long term, just like coal's done over the long term. You know, you mentioned this point that makes me think, look, part of the problem is you mentioned vested interests. 
we've created these products. We've sunk the capital assets into the ground, both literally and figuratively. We've amortized these projects over whatever, 50 or 100 years, whatever it might be. Why in God's name are people building pipelines today? Because presumably the amortization of those projects, what are they, 50 years? I, mean, I don't know, 30 years? Whatever it is, a lot of people are saying we've got maybe 20 left. Is it that these people aren't as smart as we think? Or is it that they're fighting a rearguard action to keep this stuff going for 30 years or 50 years? It's a rearguard action, I think. First of all, if you make a lot of money doing something one day, you're going to try to do the same thing tomorrow. That's habits of mind within big companies. It's the power of the incumbent, right? The incumbent can point to all this existing economic activity and say, this activity must continue. This is driving our economy. Whereas the next generation technology can't point to those existing jobs. They point to something that's going to happen in the future. So incumbents bat way above their weight when it comes to distorting political discussions and economic strategy. They co-opt policy to benefit themselves. And they do that because they're powerful and they have a lot of financial momentum. Again, if you make a ton of money doing something, you're gonna to try to do the same thing the next day. That's so why we record this I, podcast. <laughs> <laughs> so the incumbents need to get disrupted. They're not gonna disrupt themselves, right? Kodak owned the intellectual property for the digital camera. They owned that patent, but they were too busy trying to sell film to do anything with it. Hmm. And that's what our energy industry largely, I mean, there's exceptions, largely in Canada is doing. They're protecting their existing assets, they're protecting their existing jobs, and their existing sources of profit and cash flow. And it's rational for them to do that, right? They're not bad people. That's what they naturally do when they go to work in the morning. So what's the role of the public sector? To change the rules of the game such that that's not really an option for them anymore. I mean, that's what I talk about, about an assertive public sector. That's what we're gonna do. We're gonna help the incumbents get disrupted. <laughs> The inertia is, is stunning to me, not only because it impels the companies forward in the way they've always gone, but also governments, though. And that's what worries me is that we've got a sort of corporatism happening in which governments are meant to be doing what you're saying, but they're not really. They're doing it a little bit, but not sufficiently, I think, to bring about the sort of change that you argue we need and that I think we need. And that's what worries me is that how do we then incentivize you know, we want politicians to either force or incentivize companies to do the right thing. How do we incentivize politicians to do the right thing? <laughs> we're, yeah. That's the link we're missing. And I think to some extent, we're not going to do it by waiting on their enlightened benevolence. That's exactly where I think all the work is. And that's why I think retaining this left-right distinction where one group's ideas, you know, the ideology is correct and your ideas or your ideology is wrong. That's exactly how we continue to talk over a big divide and don't get cohesive action on this problem. I think we need to leave our dogma at the door and then we may be able to sort of force our politicians to do something. I mean, frankly, I think the best thing that's happened to climate in 20 years is Greta Thunberg. Hmm. And the reason I think she's the best thing to happen to climate is because she has forced conversations around family dinner tables. I mean, every oil executive, they have a family dinner table too, right? They have kids they have to answer to and grandkids and so on. And I think she has started a conversation that is far more effective at penetrating the corridors of power in this country and others simply because she's gone through the kids and the kids are asking their parents at dinner, it's getting hot, why aren't you doing something about it? And I think it's a very difficult conversation. I mean, we had conversations around our own family table about do we actually really wanna get into a plane to go on a two week vacation somewhere hot? I mean, what would Greta say? And of course, it, you know, it didn't go down all that well. 
because my spouse really wanted to get on a plane and she works very hard and deserves it. But we had the conversation and that conversation wouldn't have happened without Greta. And I think Greta is starting those conversations everywhere. And once you're inside the family discussion, I think you open up all kinds of political possibility for doing exactly what you've pointed out. We, the citizens, have to demand that our politicians demand of our corporate citizens better behavior. But I'd also point out, you know, I think there is room for corporate leaders to step up. This is part of my plea in this book. I'm saying, look, there will be populist politicians that come in the years to come, and they will prey off the fears of a population that looks at a $10 loaf of bread and wildfires in the backyard. This is coming our way. Mm -hmm. This dystopian future is coming, and it is not going to be nice. And I'm saying to the business community, Right now, capitalism has a giant target on its back because it looks like you are to blame, right? The economic machine is burning all this stuff. The factories are humming and you're not responsive. And when public anger gets expressed, you don't know what institutions are going to tear down. You don't know what it's going to look like. And that's kind of my warning that the next populist, you know, there's minor fear in the United States about identity and race and so on. And Trump has that much room to breathe. Imagine how much room a populist playing on people's fears about food and security can do. And so the business community has an opportunity to get ahead of this, you know, and don't, you don't have to fight the politicians on it or fight the public on it. Get ahead of this thing. You don't have to have all the solutions, but you can at least be at the table in good faith. And I think that's what Greta might have started is maybe there's some grown-ups out there who never would have thought of themselves as being potential heroes of this story who are now saying, gee, Maybe I could be a hero of this story. And that's the opportunity for business leaders to step up. Not stepping up, I think things could get very nasty in 10 or 15 years. And you might want to think about where you stand on this issue today and be outspoken and explicit about where you stand on this issue. I will say, I mean, in mentioning Greta and, you know, last year we saw with the climate marches something we've never seen in Canada. I mean, never. I don't think we'd ever seen coordinated action across the country like that with that many bodies in the streets and young folks who aren't just skipping class, who are out there saying, this is our future and we're worried and we want you to do something. And what was it, half a million people in Montreal or something like that? I mean, this, even Ottawa had people in the streets, which that's when you know things are serious, when people take to the streets in Ottawa, you know, it's real. <laughs> and it's a sleepy town. And we saw that again a little bit with what Soedin, and you saw some overlap between indigenous politics and climate energy politics there. So I think consciousness has shifted. And here's my bit of optimism. I can't really think of an intellectual, existential zeitgeist shift of this magnitude that has happened as quickly as mm. this one has. Because if you go back to, let's say, what, Rio, the Rio 1990, depends where you want to draw the line, or Kyoto 97, something like that we haven't been having this big, serious public debate all that long. And now it seems to be front and center in a way that defines us. And that's happened over the course of maybe 30 years, maybe yeah. 20 years, let's say. That's extraordinary to me. As slow as it might seem in sort of human historical terms, that's really fast. Yeah, and I would actually add to that. Obviously, I'm pessimistic a little bit about the future. I think it's pretty bleak. We're up a paddle right now. We need to act with some urgency. But on that note of optimism, I actually would double down and say, I've noticed in the last two to three years, I don't know if it's a Greta effect or not, but 
Five years ago, I, as a clean tech entrepreneur, if I had a solution for business that said, you can run your factory with X less emissions, that solution would have to be a fifth of the price. I mean, I would have to hit it so far out of the park from an economic perspective that it was a no-brainer slam dunk for them to make that decision because you're changing their daily habits. You're changing their daily behaviors. You're making them do something they wouldn't normally do. And big business is conservative, small c conservative. But now, if you approach a business leader and you say, all else being equal, I can give you a solution that will mitigate your emissions. It'll cost you the same to run your business. They'll jump on that all day long. So there's a willingness and people are empowered within companies now to go with solutions that lower greenhouse gases. And you don't have to be a tenth of the price and all that kind of stuff. You just kind of say, you know what? Your business will carry on as usual. You just got to put this equipment in here and it'll lower emissions and your bills will be about the same. They would never have taken you up on that offer even three or four years ago. And so the willingness to engage legitimately on reducing greenhouse gas emissions in corporate Canada is significant and it's real and it's brand new. So I think if we can build on that, there's lots of room to move. At what point do we say that this is no longer an option though? 10 years ago. It's far worse than people think in terms of the momentum behind global heating. Frankly, I don't think we're going to stop at three degrees. I think it's an all-out effort to stop at three. So 10 years ago, it should have been a sine qua non of good corporate participation. But again, you know, you react within whatever political reality you have, and you do what you can with what political currency you have at that time. I think that political currency is gaining. It's gaining because of COVID. And I think the willingness of the corporate sector to be a willing partner, if not an eager over-the-top partner, at least a willing partner, is new. And I think that's a silver lining. I'll close out on this on a slightly more pessimistic note, but trending towards, let's hope, optimism. I want a pluralist public-private sphere in which there are different interests and forces competing. That includes some market forces, lots of political forces, but in a way that distributes power and resources so that everyone has a fair shot and everything they need to get through the day. That's the sort of world I want to live in. Now, obviously, climate change threatens that. The longer we wait the more we're going to have to do and the worse we're going to be despite doing it. And to me, that's the big challenge is that the slower we are, the worse things are going to get, the harder it's going to be to do something and the more extreme we're going to have to be when we do it. <laughs> that's the worry. I mean, at what point do we actually take the next step and say, it's such a risk, it's so serious, we're done playing games, we're just going to start forcing you to do it. And it's going to be not just compulsory, but the enforcement mechanisms are going to be severe and even draconian because we're talking about an existential threat. What worries me is that's where we're headed. I mean, how do we stave that off? How do we avoid that moment? Because it can't be more than 30 years away, right? I'm not so worried about that. I mean, I actually would welcome a hard policy with teeth that forced compliance on greenhouse gas reduction. I think we're at that point right now. I mean, Ontario had cap and trade. That is one of those mechanisms, right? But mm -hmm. Ford ripped it up. So the policies by which you compel emissions reductions and in which you unlock market forces to meet those reductions are well understood. There's nothing new under the sun. Cap and trade, price on carbon, whatever. These are market mechanisms. So, so, well, right? so yeah, I think those teeth should be there. I'm worried that, and you can already see this being telegraphed south of the border. Marco Rubio already wrote an op-ed about this where they're saying, you know, the right will finally acknowledge climate change is real, but because we're so late to the game, there's absolutely no point in trying to mitigate the risk. All you want to do is make sure you're the strongest person around when that risk 
comes to roost, so to right. speak. Space force. And, you, and nation states do that, individuals do that. And so you actually skip the mitigation part. You skip the, I'm going to try to make this less bad part because you suddenly go to, oh my God, you know, life on earth is going to end as we know it. I'm going to make sure I'm the biggest bully on the block when it does. So yeah. I'm worried that we get to that spot. I'm not worried at all about regulatory environments with real teeth. I think we should have those in place now. I think I didn't express myself clearly. What I worry about is a sort of authoritarian response to the crisis, both right. domestically, but also globally, because the implications are certainly, oh, we know how borders work and don't work. We know that at the end of the day, if there's an existential threat to a powerful state and it can't get what it, it wants yeah. through fair means, it will do so through foul. And so what worries me is a world in which we've got a handful of really powerful, nervous states that are up against the wall and they decide to lash out in the way authoritarian states do, especially given, I didn't get into this earlier because it'll take us too far down the primrose path, but that democracy is itself up against the wall and in decline around the world. That there are emerging yeah, threats I, here. When I talk about climate as a systemic threat, you know, I, I mean it affects everything. If you ask the military establishment how they think about climate risk, they call it a threat multiplier. Mm. And by that, they mean it's not just the weather and the changing weather. It's what that does to push and pull on social fabric that's already stretched. So the example, I mean, right after I found out I was going to be a dad, I was at this planetary security conference in The Hague. You know, the hall was filled with all these military people, very, very serious people. <laughs> and by planetary security, they're talking about climate. But it's all the military folks. And they gave an example that has struck me ever since. They said, as a threat multiplier, it's not the weather. It's what the weather does. And so the example they gave was every refugee that hit Europe's shores in the year 2016 came from a water-stressed country from the longest drought in living memory based around Syria and the Mideast. Mm -hmm. Those refugees arrived in such numbers that when Germany opened its doors to a million of them, it caused a resurgence of the far right. So you have the resurgence of the neo-Nazis in Germany and the military people were pretty clear, that's a direct result of climate change. So the social fabric will pull and tear and that's the kind of stuff that gets quite dystopian. You know, what makes institutions stable? What makes them corrupt? What makes them last? How do nation states deal with each other? Can we pre-plan what happens when Pakistan runs out of food? Because they will, because they're one giant irrigated farm and the icebergs, the glaciers are melting, right? So I think we do need to play out those kinds of scenarios and begin to think about the kinds of international and national institutions that are capable of responding to the systemic pressures that climate will bring. And the military folks are thinking about it in those terms today. So I think that's kind of what's at stake. And that's why if you don't get the climate thing right, all the other things you care about, social justice and food and you know, all kinds of things, they don't matter because mm -hmm. the stresses from climate will be so much that all that work is undone as we unleash these sort of tectonic forces over scarce resources and, and an unstable climate. That's what keeps me up at night, and that's why I do the work I do. <laughs> it's going to keep me up at night. I think it's going to keep us all up at night. One of the examples I like to use when I'm talking about this is Sumeria. We have this idea that we're so much smarter and more sophisticated than, than ancient civilizations. I mean, technologically, plainly, we are. And yet the Sumerians farmed their fields until they were so salinated they couldn't use them anymore. They didn't let them lay fallow. And it used to be that we'd say, well, they just didn't know what they were doing. But now we know that they did know what they were doing, but they needed to meet the tax base. They needed to pay the army. <laughs> right? Yeah. And here we are doing the exact same thing.
Well, this is one of the things that's happened over the past 10 to 15 years is the great democratization of ideas that is Twitter and the internet. You know, there are really smart people who understand these systemic risks and are able to categorize these systemic risks and talk about what those solutions look like. We need to have enough respect and recognize those experts, build those kinds of institutions that can avoid exactly those kinds of bad, stupid systemic responses. We know better, right? Big frontal cortexes and you know, humans, very smart, but we have to learn to coordinate our activity when it comes to these systemic threats a lot better. Our institutions and our social dynamics have not progressed in the same way our science and technology has. I mean, John Gray talks a lot about this, the myth of progress, right? That yes, we have progress in science and technology and so on, but our political institutions are still run by human beings. And human beings have roughly the same brain structure they did you know, tens of thousands of years ago. And that's where we will fail, is those institutions will fail us, not our technology or our science or anything else. Those progress from generation to generation. But we have to relearn the same basic issues about collective action and collective security every generation or so. And hopefully we'll do that in time to stop the climate crisis. I once interviewed Ronald Wright, who wrote the book, The Short History of Progress. Right. I learned a lesson about book writing, which is if you're going to do interviews like that, don't do them on Friday afternoon. <laughs> that's, a mon- that's a Monday afternoon, maybe Tuesday afternoon. Don't do them on Friday. But one of the things he said to me was, you know, when I was writing A Short History of Progress, I gave us 50-50. Now I gave us 60-40 against. And one of the things he said was, I remember London after the Blitz. I remember the burned out buildings. I remember the food lines and the awful food. I remember that moment. And his generation remembers it. The next generation didn't know that. That's why your point about us relearning this seems so extraordinarily important to me is that we have to relearn it every generation. And we also, by the time you get to the level of the nation state and not to mention the global order, have to, you know, it's so abstract that it's difficult to connect yourself to everyone else. And I think that's a huge challenge too, is to think beyond just yourself and your day-to-day needs to the level of the city, the province, the nation state, the global order, and then project that into the future and to say, what about all of that in 30 years when we just sort of thinking moment to moment, day to day? Yeah. Yeah. Well, let me end on a note of optimism. The real shining light here is solving this problem. Like we will get off fossil fuels in the next 30 or 40 years. Anyway, new technologies are coming into play EVs and like that clean tech revolution is real and it is better, faster, cheaper. It is a smarter and more efficient energy system than what we have today. What we have today will get replaced come hell or high water because the stuff that's coming is better. The only thing we need to do is sort of push that snowball down the hill a little bit and speed up what's inevitable anyway. Because the idea of a clean energy future filled with an energy abundance of clean green energy and underwritten by technologies that produce the energy rather than digging it out of the ground, that's the kind of future that people believe in, that they would get excited by. And it happens to be one that's in our own economic self-interest. So you don't even have to do this because you want to save the planet. You could embrace accelerating that future because you think, well, someone's going to be selling all that cool equipment to somebody else. Why wouldn't Canada, why wouldn't we want to be the people that sell it? And if everyone begins to sort of get a little bit greedy and want a piece of that pie, this whole thing will accelerate through sheer self-interest and through sheer market forces but it does need a little tweak and a little bit of a push. It's gonna get there. We just need to speed it up a little bit. I could talk about this all day, but unfortunately we have run out of time. 
on the podcast, not as a civilization. <laughs> so my thanks to you for coming on and talking with me today. I appreciate the conversation. And as always, my thanks to everyone listening, if possible, from home where you are hopefully safely physically distancing as necessary and listening to public health officials and staying sane to the extent which is possible at this time. We'll see you back here again in a couple of weeks. Thanks for listening. 